Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, still on quarantine here in New York City, but occasionally making several little cute little jaunts across the river into nearby New Jersey, where I've been enjoying the online poker offerings right across the river from me. I hope you guys are all staying safe and healthy during this, uh, what does the media keep calling it, an unprecedented time, even though the exact same thing happened 100 years ago. I want to welcome back to the podcast your favorite guest. Uh, no offense to any other guest, but everyone loves when this guy is on. He is a TPE coach. He is a very, very accomplished, high-level, high-stakes, multi-table tournament player. He also plays in relatively high-stakes cash games, usually in and around my home state of Maryland. You know him, you love him, Foucault himself. Andrew Brokis. When's the last time somebody called you Foucault? Uh, I actually just started coaching a guy from France, uh, so he is he's familiar with Foucault, and he likes that that was my uh, screen name. But yeah, that was my my poker stars screen name, which once upon a time and my screen name on two plus two actually. So once upon a time, that was how most people knew me, although they uh, they knew it as Foucault. But uh, yeah, these <laughs> days I don't get a lot of those, and I'm, I'm I mean I guess I I sort of gave it away, but uh, I wonder how many of our listeners could spell Foucault without uh googling it or without getting that that clue that i just gave away <laughs> food cult i like that better actually it sounds more like a cult so yeah so uh what have you been up to during quarantine are you playing much poker what's been happening uh, i'm not playing much poker um i'm mostly writing a book <laughs> that's it, it <laughs> seems uh, quite a lot of one's time um so yeah part of it i've like i've, I've always kind of naturally kept to like an early to bed early to early to rise sort of schedule uh which is not good for poker but i think it's otherwise uh i like it for a lot of reasons i, I like the sort of solitude of the mornings um so but it's not very conducive to poker especially for poker tournaments um it's tricky to enter a tournament when like you're used to going to bed at 9 p.m <laughs> yeah sure a lot of them run until you know one two in the morning just yeah, I actually did. Um, I made my, I, I think as a percentage of the field, it might be the deepest run I've ever made in a in a tournament. Um, it's right up there. So I, I played a uh, $50 tournament that had, this is going to be a series on uh, TPA probably next month. Um, uh, it was a $50 tournament with like 5,000 some runners. And I made the final table, oh. so I, I think that that was the I shouldn't say five thousand round you know, entrance. I, I mean, two of them were me. Who knows how many were like unique people? Sure, sure. But you know, this was on America's card room, so this is reentry down until like fifteen big blinds or whatever absurdity they. <laughs> it's <laughs> kind of silly, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think as a percentage of the field, that's about as deep as I've been in in any tournament. I guess like winning a thousand player tournament amounts to about the same thing. Wow. So what time was that? Uh, that was, I think it was like 3 a.m. when we finished. Um, yeah, I was, I was pretty, pretty zonked. Although I, I don't think I, I really misplayed as a result of being tired. No, actually, there, there was one, there was one hand at the final table where uh, we were like, 
this might have been when we were five-handed and uh, I was in like third place, like a pretty significant, you know, I was like pretty well above fifth and fourth. So there's a lot of like ICM pressure on me and the button who's the chip leader min raises. I have ace eight offsuit in the big blind. I think it might just be a fold. Like it's just so hard to defend your equity in that spot where like you just, you never make a hand you can stack off with. Um, it, or, you know, it, it's so hard to make it like making a pair of eights is really hard to take to showdown. Certainly ace high is really hard to take to showdown. Your equity realization is just so bad in that situation, like out of position against the player who covers you when there's two you know short stacks in there. I don't know that ace eight offsuit is really the hand you want to be like defending from the big blind. Yeah. And yet it's still, you know, first reaction, gut reaction. It doesn't feel like it should be a fold, but maybe when you think I mean, about I deeper, maybe it is. I, I, it did occur to me. I mean, I, I didn't feel good about it immediately. <laughs> but I do sort of wonder if I had been at my very sharpest, uh, maybe I would have found a fold there. But I mean, I also feel like if that's the biggest mistake that I made, like <laughs> it was worth it. Right. Sure. Now, I know in the in the live poker world, uh, when we get to the final break of any given tournament playing day, you have what you call the uh, the cookie level. Do you have any other uh, stimulant strategy for when you're playing online till 3 a.m.? I mean, I, I do try to do something. Like, I think that that's a pretty important component of, of staying up late. And I think it's part of what um, – it's not like I've never pulled an all-nighter playing poker before. <laughs> you know, I have thought about this stuff. Uh, I think one thing that, that contributes to people getting tired is people stop eating after dinner, right? I mean, you're used to – you eat your last meal at 7 p.m. or whatever it is. And, like, that makes sense if you're going to bed at – 11 or 12 like your body doesn't really need that much fuel when it's sleeping if you expect your body to like stay awake and continue performing until like 3 or 4 a.m you need to keep giving it fuel so i mean i'm not necessarily eating sugar but uh trying to eat some nuts uh drink i don't don't drink caffeine that late either but uh drink like a mint tea or something that has like a mild stimulating effect Uh, i I try to do stuff like that like i'm i'm pretty much constantly eating or or drinking i think that's an important component of of staying awake and sharp yeah me too every hour after seven uh it's just you know red bull and cocaine just you know <laughs> <laughs> just kidding everyone yeah, the, the cocaine went without saying I didn't yeah obviously i'm a comedian so <laughs> no never even tried it believe it or not most people don't believe it so uh yeah so you, tell us i believe it okay cool cool so tell us about uh, about your new book, I have I have an advanced copy that I've just started reading. I got about maybe a quarter of the way through, and I'm absolutely loving it. So I guess what happens is, every year in May, we can expect a whole new book from Andrew Brokus because this is two Mays in a row when you are releasing a book. I, I enjoy writing. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm I'm good at it. I enjoy doing it. Uh, people seem to enjoy the results i don't have a lot of reason not and it's like super flexible like way more flexible i mean poker is kind of flexible i mean online poker much more so than than live poker of course but uh writing is like way more flexible than that even um so yeah i mean i i I wouldn't rule out doing another book it's a little hard to contemplate right now because i'm a little bit sick of (laughs) this current one but you know i was talking that way about play optimal poker this time last year and by, I mean, I, it was almost immediately after the World Series of Poker was over. I mean, I, I started writing in July. Yeah, well, you're that's amazing because, you know, of course, you we all remember you had that really nice summer, a good deep run in the main event, some other pretty good caches last summer. It's incredible to me that you weren't so pokered out that you didn't feel like writing a book, but I guess you kind of, you just jump right into it. I think one thing that you and I have in common is 
I don't really get sick of poker. Like I hear a lot of players saying, "Oh, I got burned out. I'm tired of playing." You know, I really feel like I could play poker just about every day. And even on the days when I don't play poker, I spend a good amount of my brain energy on, you know, conceptualizing and thinking about the game. Is that true of you, or do you do you really feel like sometimes you just need to forget about poker for a while? The thing with me is I do so many different poker-ish things. Right. I mean, I, I don't think I would enjoy I've never really played poker routinely for 40 hours a week. I mean, during the WSOP, I guess I'm, I'm probably you know getting close to 40 hours a week playing, but that's that's the rarity. That, that's the exception. I, I've never been a full-time poker player in the sense of you know, doing that many hours a week of, of playing. I do spend that much time, if you count, writing, making videos, coaching, uh, studying. You know, there, there's so many different things that I'm doing within the the poker. I think that's true to some degree. With I mean, most poker players are like at least studying and uh, and and playing. So you're getting like some some mix of of activities there. But I think it, more so for me than than for most people. Like I'm doing it in a lot of different ways. So there are times when I'm not really in the mood to play, but I can. And so it's nice having these projects, uh, even when you don't know that a global pandemic is, is going to strike. Um, <laughs> but you know, that just that you have that flexibility. That like, oh, they're closing the live poker rooms. Huh? No big deal. I'll just put more time into the book. Right. You had that other thing, and for me, poker is that other thing because you know, as everyone knows, you know, my my normal job, if you will, as normal as it can be, is comedy. And basically, there's no comedy right now. I mean, I know some of my friends are putting out, you know, comedy specials from their homes or they're doing like live Zoom comedy from their living rooms or whatever. It's just I I don't have, you know, I was talking about this with Joe Stapleton, you know, who's also a a comedian. He doesn't want to do that either. I I have no interest in like turning my bedroom or or any room in my home into (laughs) To a comedy club. I just, I can't. I need the live audience. So I was going to say, it seems like a really tough thing to do without an audience. I mean, I, I've seen a fair number of music shows like on Facebook Live or that kind of thing. A lot of musicians have been have been doing stuff on there, which has been fun. And I really enjoy comedy. Like in general, I, I probably consume as much comedy as I do music. But uh, I have not really been inclined to watch like Zoom comedy shows uh the way that i have watched zoom music shows or facebook live music shows and uh yeah i I feel like not having the audience is a a bigger deal for a comedian than for a musician 100 percent. as a person who has you know spent some of my life in both areas i started as a musician before i did anything else my father was a musician and all that so i can tell you like i have no issue if somebody asked me to you know put out a, a video of me playing piano or guitar singing a song that would be fine. I, I wouldn't feel at all awkward about that. But because comedy is so much, people don't even realize it's actually a dialogue. And when you can't hear the other person, then you're just turning a dialogue into a monologue. And it, for me, it really takes the fun out of it. Uh, I shouldn't actually make this statement without ever having done it. But I kind of feel like I don't need to do it to know that I'm not going <laughs> to like it. <laughs> I'm just not going to enjoy that at all. But yeah, I I agree. Music is is quite different. But fortunately for me, I love poker maybe as much as I love comedy. So I've really thrown myself into not only this podcast but also you know studying the game in a way that I haven't before because I just have more hours where I'm not going out to do my spots at night. I have time to you know get deeper into my TPE videos and maybe even use my newly discovered poker tracker software to <laughs> to you know kind of look at my own play and, and figure all that stuff out 
So newly it, discovered, like you didn't have Poker Tracker before. Well, I didn't really play online that much before. I mean, I did back in like oh three oh four, but back then we didn't really use, uh, you know, HUD. The HUD wasn't really a thing back when I was grinding online, if you will. And then you know, I really got into live to where after Black Friday, I I totally stopped playing online completely. I never did like, you know, I know go to Canada and play scoop or anything like that. I never did anything like that. I didn't move to Mexico like so many of my friends did right after Black Friday. So, yeah, I kind of dropped out of online poker until only very recently where I, I dabbled in it a little bit during the World Series just to play in a few satellites. I got into a couple of bracelet events on WSOP.com like while I was in Vegas and playing against other people who were also in Vegas, which is mm-hmm. totally different than, you know, being able to play against the whole world. So, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, now that I'm playing on, you know, all the different sites, some regulated and some not, I <laughs> I have access to a much larger pri- uh, you know, player pool and I I just I was doing it so much. I was like, you know, I'm I think it's time to go ahead and invest in some software just to I don't really use it as much to figure out what my opponents are doing wrong. I'd rather just watch them for that, but I try to just do it to check my own my own numbers, my own ranges, and yeah, just just for the data collection on yourself alone, it's worth. Even if you never turn the HUD on, it's worth having a poker tracker. Yeah, and I, on it all seriously. Yeah, and that's that's what I've been using it for, and I'm pretty pleased. You know, I feel like my my ranges are good, and my at least you know from the I guess I have twenty or thirty thousand hands, which isn't a huge amount, but it's not nothing, uh, and I can see patterns where I need to call three bets a little less often. And I need to be a little less aggressive after the flop. Like, I'm starting to find maybe some leaks in my game. And they do tend to be of the uh, Clayton trying to bully everybody variety. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because you're, you're such a, a mild-mannered and friendly guy. I am a super friendly guy. Table, but... And then suddenly you turn into this, this bully. Yeah, but you know, man, it just goes all the way back to sitting around the kitchen table with my brothers and my mom. And we just we all wanted to win so bad. It just goes all the way back to that like my competitive family, where it's not personal. It doesn't mean that I'm a cutthroat human. It just means that when I play, I I play to win, and I find that putting people in tough spots usually involves aggression. But uh, if there's a mistake that I make the most, it's probably that I take that concept a little too far. Not gross, you know. I'm not crazy, but it's a little a little too much. I'm trying to get those numbers down and maybe just pick a few more give up spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, rather than trying to, as Vanessa Selps would say, trying to win every pot. <laughs> that's right. kind of the disease that I suffer from occasionally. So, I, yeah. I think that's a problem for a lot of really competitive people who want to play poker. That they come like because we use the term winning anytime the pot gets pushed to you. But like you're not actually playing winning poker just because you like winning at poker is not the same as winning pots. And so people who they I think there are people who can't separate that. Where like when they lose a pot, they feel like a loser. And like if you if you made the correct fold, like that's winning. Right. Yeah. Even though it, they don't push you chips, but you know it's it actually goes all the way back to Benjamin Franklin: a penny saved is a penny earned. Right. Yeah, absolutely. This, this these chips that I'm wasting on these bluffs that are ill-advised in the first place are chips that I'm better off just keeping in my stack. And mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, I I always try to think about Benjamin Franklin while I play poker. 
<laughs> Not really. That would be weird. <laughs> I think about it's all Foucault. about the Benjamins, baby. Yeah, all about the Benjamins, of course. That's the original Benjamin. So, uh, you know, your first book, which was incredibly well received, it's extremely highly rated. Um, it was called Play Optimal Poker. And, uh, you know, it really kind of changed the game for a lot of us. Uh, first of all, for those of us who are like me, my original method of learning, really studying the game, uh, was from talking poker strategy with my family. Uh, and then I, I got into like Super System and some of those early books like Harrington on Hold'em. So for me, the idea of sitting down and reading a book to learn is the method that works best for me. I find I learn more from reading a book in general than I do from watching a video. Uh, now, some people are so good at making videos, yourself included, that I learn a lot from your videos as well. But many times it's just somebody kind of telling you what he did, but not really helping you understand why. Mm -hmm. uh, but your books and the way you teach, it feels like I'm taking a class. And uh, I really like your, your writing style for that reason. And so play uh, optimal I'm poker. You say that because I, you know, as, as someone who makes both videos and books like when i decided i wanted to, to write both my first book and then now this the second one that is something that i think about is like why is this a book and not a video like what am i going to do to to like what makes this a book project why is this not just a series of, of videos and the idea is that it should be something more comprehensive like it sort of it has a, a thesis it's a um it, it's a it's a big coherent work that's designed to help you think about things in a certain way whereas the videos are a little i mean some of my videos are more like theoretically driven but they're all smaller in scope like the, the book is definitely trying to do something bigger than what i think i could do in even uh several series of videos you you're absolutely great at accomplishing that and i mean that not only as your friend but as someone that I think you've made me a lot of money. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> honest. You know, watching your videos and reading your books and reading your articles and pretty much everything you put out, I have consumed, uh, you know, with uh, veracity, uh, if that's the right word. Um, I, I think that you have changed the way I think about the game, and I guess I would guess that as a teacher, that's what you're, that's what you're really trying to accomplish, right? Yeah, I actually, um, I, I guess I'm, I'll probably end up putting this in the book. I don't know if it's in the version. Did, did the version that I sent you have a preface? It did. Okay, so you, you saw this already. Uh, so I, I wrote this thing that, I mean, it, it feels a little pretentious or whatever, but I guess I'm just putting it out there as like what I hope and not necessarily what I what I think I'm, I'm accomplishing. But I mean, I have been thinking about, is there, I mean, this is a question poker players have been asking for a long time. Like, is there some value to this game other than just like the money that we win? Like, are we actually, is there any sort of like social value to the idea of all these people like sitting around and, and playing poker? And I don't want to stretch that too far because, like, I, I certainly wouldn't compare us to like healthcare workers or something <laughs> right. uh, in, in terms of like the 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 extent of social value. But I do think there's something to like why do societies play games? You know, like this is something going all the way back to like the Olympics, like the original Olympic games in in Greece. Like you know, the societies or cultures develop games because they want to cultivate certain skills in their populace. And um, I do think that poker when you know, properly studied and, and properly pursued. Like, I think it's made me a better decision maker. I think it's made me, I don't know if smarter is quite the right word, but maybe like savvier or better at, um, it's, it, you know, cultivated certain habits of thought for me. 
And to the extent that uh, I can you know, contribute anything to society other than just uh, helping you know, individual you know, one-off people make money, which is not nothing. But um, yeah, I think the, the idea of trying to help people think better in ways that maybe even extend beyond poker, not that I ever make that explicit, but I think you learn how to think about a poker decision correctly and you know, learning not to be results oriented, for instance, you know, that has huge implications for life decisions, learning to think in terms of choices and say, well, I can do A or B. It's not just, oh, my God, a, I can imagine a really terrible thing happening if I do A. So I guess I'll do not A. You know, like you have to look at both options. And that's a mistake people make in poker all the time, too. They just say, well, you know, what if he raises? I can't bet. Right. They just they just see a downside and then that's all they think they've made their decision because they see a, a downside and, and, until you assess the pluses and minuses of of all your options. You, know, you can't uh, you can't make your decision. So I think, you know, hoping hopefully clarifying people's decision making a little bit. Uh, yes, yeah, certainly a goal as a writer and a teacher. That's a lofty goal. I wonder what. Foucault himself would say about <laughs> about that, but you know, in a very he certainly real... had that effect. Well, I don't know about clarifying. He, I don't know if he was into clarifying exactly, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he certainly changed the way a lot of people thought. For sure, and you know, kidding aside, I believe that you uh, you are capable of that, and your first book proved that to me because before I read Play Optimal Poker, and I don't want to get too infomercially here but you know in addition to being your friend and your colleague i suppose uh i'm a fan of yours and your book really changed my understanding of this idea of game theory that only a few years ago uh, was just kind of a nebulous concept to most of us you know we we sat down and we tried to beat our opponents but the idea that a computer would be able to tell me what the correct play is to be unexploitable and how to then take that information and actually apply it to real life. Because I think that a lot of people are capable of understanding the concept of something like equilibrium because we can all understand that no one wins at tic-tac-toe, right? Mm -hmm. So we get that idea and that poker would have a theoretically uh, you know, based equilibrium solution to any given problem but then when we're playing against people who are making mistake after mistake after mistake why should we care about equilibrium and that was always the question i had when people would would tell me in my you know hundred dollar buy-in daily tournament at borgata that i should be thinking about game theory and be more gto i would just laugh in their faces like that's ridiculous because i don't need game theory to beat these guys i just need to know that this guy calls too much and this guy bluffs too much and that guy folds too much but now i understand after having read play optimal poker that even in a game where exploiting my opponents is a very real possibility because I'm not playing against the best in the world, I should still understand the game theory and understand why the theory is what it is and what I'm doing and what mistakes I could actually be making while doing all that. And I kind of gathered all of that from the, the different chapters of your book using non-poker, many times non-poker or sort of a watered-down, I guess you call them toy games, but versions of poker that we would actually never play, like one player has a king, one player has either a queen or an ace, right? But those games help you understand the idea that one player is polarized and the other player is condensed 
And so how does that affect decision making? So, yeah, I mean, that's what I got from the first book. So when you told me that you were writing another book, I was like, well, I mean, where can we go from here? He's already opened my eyes so much. Yeah. So first off, thank you. Um, my, my less lofty goal in, in writing the book is and, and just in being a, a teacher period making videos for tpe or anything else is just that when you play poker so much of what even when i play against people that i like you and i have played at a table before and like even when you're playing with your friends and you're having fun it's still zero sum in the sense that one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose and you know that's like when we're in a pot together it's very much like what you lose is what i win uh maybe there's a little ancillary benefit of like we both enjoyed sitting there at the table or whatever but like mostly it's it's a zero sum dog eat dog kind of thing so getting to help my friend right to, to hear my friend say uh, oh you made me some money with that book um that's a nice feeling like that's uh, i think that's something that human beings or i at least am am wired to seek out and poker does not really provide that, that feeling of uh helping another person <laughs> doing something valuable especially for a person that you uh that you like or are sympathetic with or whatever so um i i appreciate that you know, that's interesting, Andrew, because in a very similar way, I enjoy helping other comedians, especially newer comedians, with their material. You know, comedy is kind of an isolated, it's not exactly a zero-sum game, because if we have a good show, the whole audience is happy and all the comedians are happy. It's good for everybody if everybody's mm -hmm. funny, right? Um, but at the same time, there is a there's a sort of an isolated nature just by virtue of the fact that it's a type of performance that you do by yourself you know right. as opposed to a play where you're all telling the story of aladdin or the lion king or something this is just me telling my story and it does kind of feel a little lonely sometimes a lot of comedians struggle with uh depression and feelings of loneliness even though you wouldn't think that because they're getting all this love and adoration every night. I tend to think the causality is going the other way there. They're like, they, they were gonna, they were already sort of depressive types and that's what drew them to comedy. In the first place. <laughs> that's true. You have to be a really messed up person to want to do that job. And uh, I certainly am. So yeah, that's true. I think that, yeah, there is a lot of depression in, in the brain of the person that's an aspiring comedian before he or she ever even takes the stage for the first time. But for me, one way that I fight that loneliness or whatever, or that feeling of isolation that comedy sort of provides or, or contributes to at least, is in helping others. You know, I reach out to other comedians. We get together, work on material. Um, you know, I teach classes where I don't charge a, a ton of money for the classes, um, just barely enough to make it worth my while, to be honest. Um, and just helping people and seeing them learn about something that I enjoy so much and getting better at a quote unquote game that I like to play. I think there's a, there's a little bit of a parallel here between why you write books and do coaching and make videos and why I teach comedy classes and, and do comedy coaching. Yeah. And, and not a coincidence. Like I said, I mean, I think this is, uh, I, I think the rarity is the people who don't care about that. Like I, I think for most, most humans are interested in having, 
cooperative, positive sum relationships with other humans, even if they also enjoy being competitive. Like I do have a competitive side and I you know it certainly sounds like you do. Um, but like, those things aren't mutually inconsistent. Like I think if, if you were only ever in competitive relationships with other people, even if you're a competitive person, unless you're like, you know, ultra competitive, like Bobby Axelrod sort of person, <laughs> right. um, you know, you're, you're going to want to scratch that like at some point that's going to be unsatisfying. If the only thing you're ever doing is, is you're in, in like uh, zero sum relationships with other people uh, for, for the, I think for the large majority of humans, that would not be a fulfilling life. Yeah, I guess you're probably right. Well, that was certainly a tangent I didn't expect us to take, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad we did. <laughs> so, you know, but let me get back to the question I was, I was originally going to ask you. Uh, the first book kind of helped those of us that, didn't fully understand why we should learn game theory mm-hmm. and think of poker from a GTO sort of overview, if you will, uh, kind of gave us an understanding of why it's important and how you can actually use those concepts in your in your game. So to me, that's what I took from from Play Optimal Poker was that I understood game theory in a way I hadn't before and how to actually apply it in practice. So if that's what the first book did, what is the the goal of the second book? To get a lot deeper on that understanding. So it, it is very much Play Optimal Poker 2. I mean, it is a sequel to the first book. I think most people should read the first book before they read the second. The exception would be, I mean, I don't really have any delusion that Bill Chen is reading these, but uh, you know, if, if you have like, you already have a deep understanding of, of the sort of like basic game theory concepts, like not just, you know what equilibrium is, but like you really get it. essentially like you could go through a platform book and be like, Oh, I already know this stuff. You know, then I, I don't think it's that there's something specific to how I'm teaching it that you need to know. But I think the, the, like the book definitely, the second book presumes that you're familiar with the concepts from the first. They do have the same overarching goal of the goal is to help you understand poker, right? It's not a tournament book. It's not a cash game book. It's not a deep stack or shallow book. It's not a live book or an online book. It's a book about poker. It's not even really a book that's specific to No Limit Hold'em all that much. I mean, all the examples come from No Limit Hold'em because that's the game that I'm most familiar with and it's the game that I would expect most readers to be familiar with. Most of the concepts would apply in any poker game and even in some cases in games that aren't poker. Uh, But it, it really is just about how to understand poker and how to think about the why behind doing things you know it's it's not a book about how to play ace king or how to bluff the river it's much more about just like how to think about any decision that you might have in poker so the first book focused a lot on uh well first just you know explaining basic game theory concepts and then getting into the idea of polarized and condensed ranges, right? That it makes a difference. Uh, it's not just about equity. Once we introduce betting into the game, then it makes a difference which player, like, having having knowledge about the strength of your hand, knowing that you have a strong hand or knowing that you have a weak hand is better than having a hand that's sort of in the middle where you're like, oh, I don't know what, you know, and we all sort of know that intuitively, like, oh, I don't know where I stand. But then the implications of well, what do you actually do about that? Is a, the, the first book was very much about the, the polarized versus condensed range dynamic. Some of the material that's in the second book I had initially written to be part of the first, and I decided to sort of scale back the scope of the first book because I thought it was already going to be overwhelming for a lot of people. Um, so the second book 
gets into you know in poker in real poker games as opposed to, to toy poker games we're rarely dealing with truly polarized ranges especially before the river and so on the river generally if you're betting you're either value betting or you're bluffing there's not really a third reason to bet on the river but before the river it is more complicated than that generally you should still be able to identify i mean we still can talk about value bet and bluff before the river and it usually makes sense like in 95 percent of cases right it, we can kind of identify this is a value bet or this is a bluff but even if you think about uh you know you three bet pocket aces before the flop okay you're mostly doing it for value like you have the nuts you want to get more money in the pot you want to make the pot larger you're still benefiting from fold equity i mean if you three bet aces and your opponent folds 10 eight suited there's value there it's not as good for you as if he called, but like it's still better than just calling and letting him see the flop for free. You know, 10 8 suited does have a chance of drawing out on aces, and when it does, it usually wins a pretty big pot. So you're not only protecting your equity, you're also protecting those potential losses. That's even more clear when we think about three betting a hand like ace king. Right? When you three bet ace king, you three bet pocket tens. Um, often, even though you're three betting expecting to have the best hand, it's still better for you if your opponent folds. Like usually when you're three betting ace king, you're, I mean, unless you're like really shallow, which I guess in tournaments, sometimes you are rooting for a call. But like in most cases, when you three bet ace king, you don't mind getting called. You have a hand that'll still play pretty well after the flop. But like your best case scenario is often your opponent folding, even though you're three betting expecting to have the best hand. And most betting is like that before the river. Like generally your bets are benefiting from a combination of fold equity plus pot equity and that's more true you know some hands benefit more from the pot equity some benefit more from the fold equity but usually it's a combination of i'll be in i'll have good equity if my opponent calls maybe i'm ahead maybe i just have draws to good hands but usually we're betting hands that either we think we're already ahead or we have draws to potentially be ahead we're semi-bluffing so we're counting on having some pot equity if we're called but at the same time there's value in making the opponent fold Right. When we're betting with a draw, the value is very clear in making the opponent fold because if we just have, you know, we're betting queen jack on a 10-9-3 board, we're very happy to get folds because we just have queen high. But even if you're betting uh, ace-10 on the 10-9-3 board, there's still value in making your opponent fold. Right? Often when your opponent folds, he's folding at least one, if not two, over cards. Sometimes he's folding a backdoor draw. Sometimes he's, he's folding hands that have a chance of drawing out on you. Your equity improves when your opponent folds. And part of the value of betting is in causing your opponent to fold. And in fact, you know, I would argue there's there's sort of more value in betting ace-10 on a 10-9-3 board than there is in betting pocket aces on a 10-9-3 board. Well, that's not to say that, that ace-10 would have higher EV, but the EV difference between betting and checking, like the value add of betting rather than checking, is probably greater with ace-10. Right, your equity is pretty sound equity versus the hands that call you, but the value of making your of, of the folds, right? When you have ace 10, you benefit substantially from hands that your opponent folds. When you have pocket aces, you don't benefit so much from his folds because it's much harder for him to draw out on pocket aces. What I'm hearing is that something we were taught in the early days of poker writing, they said every time you make a bet, you have to know why you're betting, whether it's a value bet or a bluff. And I see. Now, I, so I want to stop you after you say know why you're betting. <laughs> I do think that part is true. Um, you do have to know why you're betting. It's just that the answer is not always as simple as for value or as a bluff. Um, it, it is more complicated than that before the river. And the reason for that is because there may or may not be 
betting on future streets. The threat, what Harrington actually refers to as the hammer of future betting, where he says bluffing on the turn. This is like a book from 2003. Bluffing on the turn is more... Uh, what's the word he used? I, I forget, but he's basically saying that it, it's it's stronger to bet mm-hmm. with more chips behind on the turn because your opponent has to also worry about what you might do on the next street as well. Whereas when you make a bluff on the river, it might be a little bit easier for your opponent to call knowing that he can basically call and see what you have without worrying about right. any more chips going in. So it's the leverage, right? That's part of it, but even if you're not, even if you're the player who's calling, you still have to be anticipating what's happening on future streets, right? When when you make a decision to call the flop, you have to, or you should be thinking about more than just, you know, do I think I have the best hand, or even what are my pot odds and what are my outs? I mean, so this is the way. If you're very new to poker, this is generally what we teach people: is like, well, okay, so if you think you have the best hand, you definitely don't fold. And if you have a draw, then you sort of you count your outs and you compare it to the pot odds, and that tells you whether or not to to call. And I mean, that's not really how you make decisions. There's plenty of times when you call and you're not getting the right odds, uh, and that's because you're counting on a lot of other things. I mean, sometimes you're counting on if I make the the hand, I'll win some additional bets. Sometimes you're counting on I might be able to bluff some rivers where I don't make it. Sometimes you're thinking like, well, okay, I have some outs that are like very nutty. You know, I have outs to a flush, but then I also have pair outs, and like there's a chance that those are going to be good. I have a backdoor straight draw. So there's a lot of other things that that go into the decision. And one of the things you have to consider is you don't know what the board is going to look like on the river. And there's lots of different ways that the board could develop. And that's something that should be factored into any kind of. So the the subtitle of this book is is range construction. This is a book about how to assemble ranges, how to think in terms of ranges on uh, mostly on early streets. I mean, to some degree on the river also, but it's more important on early streets that you shouldn't just be thinking about how do I want to play this one hand? You should be thinking about what are the situations I'm likely to end up in in future streets and what tools do I want to have in my toolbox when I get there? Right? That's what you're doing. When you, when you make a decision to bet the flop, uh, what you should be thinking is not, I want to take it down now. I don't want to see more cards. I think I have the best hand. There's a flush draw on the board. Like those, those are not the things you should be thinking when you bet the flop. What you should be thinking is, what tools am I going to need on the turn? What might the board look like on the turn? What might the board look like on the river? What hands am I going to want to hold in a scenario where my opponent checks and calls? What hands am I going to want to hold on possible turns on possible rivers, right? That's what's affecting, you know, you're thinking ahead to the river and then you're saying, well, a, a flush could come. So I should bet some flush draws, a backdoor flush should come. I should bet some backdoor flush draws. An ace might come. I should bet some aces. You have to think about all of these things. And when we talk about balance on early streets, it's not just uh, uh, thinking about a bluffing frequency. It's thinking about all these things, right? Being balanced on any possible run out. Now, a Pio solver can do that perfectly. Right? You know, a, a computer can do this perfectly. Uh, our brains cannot, right? Just our, our simple human brains. We have to study what computers do and learn heuristics for making these decisions. You know, we have to simplify these things. And that's a lot of what the book is about, is how do you take this really complicated stuff that in theory is what you should be doing and that, you know, a, a solver is doing, how do you turn that into something that your human brain can do in 30 seconds while you're sitting at the poker table? Well, you know, it's a book that 
I think the poker world is ready for. Uh, I'm a little sorry you wrote it because I'm afraid people are going to get so good at the game now. <laughs> like, it's already tough enough to win. And now if if enough people read this book, you're basically going to put me out of business. Um, but I do think it's wonderful that you are willing to share your deep, obviously very deep understanding of the game and the math and the science behind the game uh, with everyone in this way. Now, I realized in the middle of that, we didn't give the title of your book. <laughs> We've been talking about <laughs> your new book. Yeah, that, I, I did the same thing. <laughs> so tell us the title of your new book so people can at least buy it. <laughs> Play Optimal Poker 2, Range Construction. The What is the thought process that you should have uh, when when making really any any decision? Certainly any decision where there's still money behind. All in decisions where you're like, facing an all-in bet are a bit different but um other than that you know if, if they're still going to be betting on later streets then you should be thinking in terms of range construction not just what i want to accomplish now but what tools will i need later well you know i really love nerding out with you i could talk poker theory with you all day every day but they will absolutely kill me if we don't do a strategy segment i mean i can't have andrew brokus on the podcast and not talk a hand with him so uh, i don't want to get you killed yeah please don't be responsible for my death so i know that you said you had a hand you wanted to uh to talk with me about and so what is it and what's it from okay uh this is from one of those forays onto america's card room that i was mentioning to you and you know, this wasn't a huge pod. This is not from I, I didn't want to do one from the, the deep run that I had because that's going to be on TPA anyway. So people are going to get to see those hands. Um, but I, I pulled a hand where I took a line that I imagine a lot of uh, well, a lot of poker players in general, a lot of TPA members probably never take this this betting line. It's just not something that they do. And um, in particular, I think a lot of people wouldn't do it with my hand. So I guess I'll, I won't set it up any more than that. <laughs> we can we can talk about. The I'm definitely intrigued. Up. So yeah. Uh, so this is a uh, we're on America's card room. It's an eight max tournament. So we're eight handed. Uh, the blinds are 175, 300 with an ante of 40. I have about 25,000 chips, which I think is like 70-ish big blinds. Um, most people, I, I cover most people at the table, but not by a lot. So I think probably the starting stack was, you know, 20 or 25K. And uh, that's what most people have is, is somewhere between 20 and 25K. So we're like 70-ish blinds deep. Uh, I have King Jack offsuit under the gun. So our decision right away. Okay. So for me... And and you know I readily admit that I'm a little too tight in early position, but even at an eight-handed table as this one is, I'm just folding this. I don't play this hand from the gun unless I'm at a really, really good, super juicy table where I'm not worried about having to deal with being out of position against you know decent opponents. So I'm I'm sure that you didn't. I want to talk about a hand where you just folded on your very first yeah, I just, decision. You know, I, I figured I, I wanted to have a lot of time to talk about the book, so I thought strategy <laughs> segment, short and sweet. I folded, hands over. No, obviously you're going to play the hand. But I wanted to ask you, how big a mistake am I making if I just always fold King Jack unless I'm at the best table in the world? 
not very large. Uh, this is actually kind of gets to a concept from the, the first book, which is when you're uh, indifferent at equilibrium, right? So which is a, a game theory concept where in, in theory, like if, if we were to, to have a solver that was looking at preflop stuff and those exist there, it's a it's a resource intensive thing to do, but you can do preflop solves. Um, I think there's a fair chance this would be a mix, meaning it sometimes raises and sometimes folds, which means that the EV of raising in theory is zero. Right? If, if it were higher than zero, it would always raise the hand. If it's sometimes folding, then the EV must be zero. If the EV were, I mean, if the EV of raising were less than zero, then it would always fold. So right. if it's a mix, the EV of raising has got to be zero in theory at equilibrium. That means if you do everything perfectly afterwards and your opponents do everything perfectly afterwards, then um, whether you raise or fold, you're not making any money either way. Okay, so then what makes you, uh, what factors into your decision to play this hand in the first place? I expect that uh, although neither I nor my opponents are going to do everything perfectly, I expect to do things more perfectly than they will. So at a table, um, I, I guess for me, I would say if this is anything other than an, an especially bad table, um, I am going to raise this. So I, I think if it's close at equilibrium, the question I'm going to ask myself is, do I think I'm going to over or underperform my opponents in this situation? And my assumption is that I'm going to play at least a little bit better than they are, which means I'm going to make at least a little bit of money playing this hand. Right. And you will probably typically overperform most of your opponents in a tournament like this one. But you said it's a $50 buy-in on ACR. Yeah, there's uh, definitely this, some... might not have, this might have been 100 but it was not a big okay. huge buy-in. Yeah, so it's not like they're big, you know, high roller or something. So, yeah, you would probably have a skill advantage over... I would say at least 95% of the tables that you'll encounter. Functionally, I'm always raising this because I don't play enough on ACR to like, I wouldn't know it if I were at a really bad table. Like I, I wouldn't recognize a bad table. So <laughs> right. I'm, I, I'm just going in assuming I'm always the best player at the table. Right. And against the field, you most likely will be. So, all right, great. So that's the difference between you and me. You can raise this and I'm still going to probably keep folding until I like really study your second book. <laughs> all right. So we open, uh, uh, is there any reason to do anything other than a min raise? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it matters that much as the bottom line. I mean, there there are, there are big mistakes you could make. Like I wouldn't four exit, but like I don't think the question of whether you min raise it or two point two exit or two point five exit is uh, it's pennies. I mean, that's it's not a big deal. Right. Okay. So why don't we just min raise and see what happens? That's exactly what I did. Great. Uh, so I min raise. I got called by the cutoff and by the big blind. Okay, so we are going to be second of three. And these guys have pretty decent stacks too, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not looking at commitment or anything yet. All right. And Hero has the king of diamonds and jack of spades. Yes, it's going to become a little bit important. Okay, so the flop... There's twenty five ninety five. Why don't we just go ahead and call it twenty six hundred? Yeah, let's, let's do a little mitzvah for our listeners. Twenty six hundred in the pot, and the flop comes Jack of Diamonds, Five of Spades, Tray of Diamonds. So Jack Five Three with two diamonds, and we have King Jack with the King of Diamonds. Uh, and the first player checks. So now it's on us, and we can either bet. Our 
top pair king kicker or we can check. Uh, why don't you talk me through the merits to both plays? I want to come back first to something you said, which is, um, you know, we're not really thinking about commitment yet, which is true. Um, you know, I, we're, we're, the stack to pot ratio here is probably eight ish. You know, so it's um, it's not like we're going to be getting all in on the flop very often or, you know, faced with that decision. But I am, you know, this is no limit hold. I'm like all the money can be bet at any time. We're certainly within the point where like the money could easily get in by the river. Like the stack to pot ratio is small enough that like we could easily end up playing for stacks by the river. Yeah, it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Plenty of times, especially with two opponents, the money right. could could go in so yeah i guess i misspoke if i say we're not thinking about commitment at all but obviously like our first bet if we make one now isn't going to commit us to this pot right yeah it's not like if we bet we're gonna have to call off any right right yeah but but, you know a question that you do want to be asking yourself is do i have a nutty hand and what i mean by a nutty hand is a hand that's going to be good enough to play for stacks on a lot of runouts and this is complicated because we don't know what the board is going to look like on the river. We don't know whether we're going to have a hand that's going to want to play for stacks on the river. I mean, this is an extremely good flop for us um, to the point where even at SPR 8, I think you know, even in a three-way pot, even at SPR 8, this still is a hand I wouldn't feel too bad about getting all in with on the flop. Usually once you get over SPR 5, that gets to be kind of a lot to commit with one pair, especially in a multi-way pot. This is such a good flop for us that I wouldn't feel too bad about even, you know, getting stacks in on the flop. Um, how likely am I to feel good about the hand on the river? Uh, there's a lot of runouts where I'm still going to feel pretty good about it. Um, there's only two overcards that can come since a king will make me two pairs. So like an ace or a queen are the worst cards that could come. I have a backdoor draw to not the nut flush, but the second nut flush. So I have some potential to turn into a pretty strong hand later. You know, this this is a, a relatively nutty hand. That said, it won't break my heart if stacks don't go in. Like I wouldn't say that I'm downright eager to get stacks in here. I'll often have a hand that's happy to play a relatively large pot. I'll probably feel better off in general with two bets going into this pot rather than three. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a textbook, good but not great hand. Good, pretty good flop. You're like you say, you're not. It's not like you flopped a full house and you're dying to get all the chips in if you know by all, any means necessary. Right. So, yeah, and, and I think that when we get a flop like this, then we basically have a hand that's most likely going to make top pair, right? So two high cards, you're usually hoping to just hit a king or a jack and then continue accordingly, right? I mean, mm-hmm. of course, you also had some straight possibilities pre-flop, and there's always a chance that you could backdoor into a nice king high flush uh, with a hand like this. But mostly we're raising, hoping to hit, exactly what we hit which is a pair of jacks that's actually a really important point about the pre-flop decision right that that's why this is close if this was king jack suited this would not be close if this were king jack suited this you should definitely be raising it uh, also if we made the sbr much lower if the if i'm sorry if the uh, like if we had 30 big blind stacks pre-flop you should always be raising this um because at with with a, a smaller stack the kind of hand the king jack makes. Remember, range construction is about thinking ahead. What tools am I going to want on later streets? With a, with a smaller stack, you are just going to be looking to, well, if I make top pair, that's going to be good enough to play for my stack. And king jack makes a pretty good top pair. Uh, the, the reason why this is a, a somewhat dicier hand to play at this stack depth is that even when you do make top pair, even on a board as favorable as this one, you still don't feel that great about playing for stacks. And of course, there's many other boards that are 
pretty good for King Jack, where you would really not feel good about playing for stacks. Like you'll make a lot of middle pair. Sometimes you know the board is more like Jack nine six, and you know, your top pair is not quite as exciting as it is on Jack five three. There's a lot of boards at SPR eight where even when you make top pair, you're not that excited about playing for stacks. That's not nearly as true if we were to cut the stacks in half. Right. That kind of makes me. If the idea is that we're not too upset about getting all in on this flop or at some point because it is such a great flop for our hand, then that sort of leans me towards why don't we just go ahead and bet? We took the yeah, and I think most people do bet here. I mean, I, I would imagine most people bet here 100% of the time. Um, I think this is another one. I mean, there's a lot of mixing in game theory. Uh, I think there's a pretty good chance this is a mix on the flop. Uh, sometimes bet, sometimes check. I think a lot of people just always bet the flop, which is not necessarily bad. Um, exploitatively, it's quite possible that betting the flop is the best play. And if that's true, you should always bet the flop. But I don't think most people make a decision. I don't think most people even consider checking the flop here. I think most people just see, oh, I have, you know, it's a good flop for me, but I can imagine scary turns. Uh, I want to bet the flop. It's just, you know, you feel like it makes your, I don't mean to say you personally, but like people feel like it makes their own lives easier to bet, which it probably does, but it might also be making your opponent's lives easier. Yeah. If you never check a jack in this situation, um, there are certain mistakes you're not giving your opponents the opportunities to make. And I think a lot of people, I mean, it, it's fine if you're betting here as a choice, but I think it should be a choice. You, you should at least be considering checking because in theory, checking should be just as good of a play. And so you should be asking yourself, what mistakes do I believe my opponents are going to make? And are they more likely to make mistakes versus a bet or mistakes versus a check? Right. Okay. Got it. Now, I guess where my brain would go is I want to be able to make a continuation bet when I have ace-queen, ace-king, other hands that I may have raised early that miss this flop, and so therefore I want to balance that by also betting when I have value like king-jack. Um, I... I... 90% agree. Um, I don't want to frame it as a, this is something that we're doing in order to protect some other hand we might have. Like, you're probably never going to be in this situation with these players again. So the idea is not we're going to do this in order to protect some other part of our range. The idea is that um, we likely are going to have a checking range on this flop, right? I mean, I don't think you should be C-betting any two cards. This is the, we're, we're in a three-way pot. Your position is bad. Um, it's, this is one of the more favorable flops for the original Razor relative to two callers. But still, I, I think in a three-way pot, um, unless you're, you're doing it for exploitative reasons, I don't think you're really supposed to have a 100% CBAT frequency. So um, your opponents, like, you, there should be some weak hands that you're checking on this flop. Your, uh, that means that your opponents are going to have incentive to do a few things, right? The, the, the fact that you that you are at least going to be perceived as potentially checking weak hands on this flop means that your opponents are going to have incentive to bet when checked to. They're going to have incentive to bluff. They're going to have incentive to bet hands that are worse than King Jack for some combination of value and protection. They're also going to have incentive to call you on later streets after you check the flop because they should expect that your flop checking range is weaker than your flop betting range. And if that's how you actually play, uh, if you never check a good hand on the flop, but you do sometimes check bad hands, then your opponents are playing well against your checks. 
your opponents are correctly bluffing and correctly thin value betting and correctly bluff catching after you check the flop. And if you do sometimes check King Jack, then you might find that opponents try to play exploitatively against you, thinking that you would never check a hand like King Jack, because many people don't. And in fact, they make larger mistakes than they would have made had you bet. So I would say that the, the point of this is not to protect a checking range so much as to take advantage of mistakes that the opponent might make because we are going to check some weak hands on this board, or at least they will likely expect us to. Okay. Yeah, great. I love it. All right. So we do check. And so it's one check, two check, three checks. Everybody checks on this flop. Now, in Hero's Shoes... How do we feel about the fact that it checked through? That's not really a problem for us, is it? I'm pretty happy about it, actually. Yeah. Um, I'm not that excited. If, if my opponent bets on the river, or sorry, if, if, if the, the imposition player bets, if it, if it, you know, the button checks, I check, and then the cutoff bets. Uh, I'm definitely not looking at the, well, not definitely, but I, I'm not planning on check raising. Like, I, I'm probably just going to call. And if he keeps betting, I have a bluff catcher. Right. If I check and call the flop and then he bombs the turn, he bombs the river, I have a bluff catcher. Sure. And people who have read Play Optimal Poker know a bluff catcher does not have, you know, it's often zero EV to check and call down. Maybe here I have a good enough blocker that it's like slightly plus EV, but it's not a very plus EV spot if he just barrels off three streets. So I'm definitely not hoping for that. Right. If he bets the flop and checks back the turn, that's okay. But honestly, like if it checks around, um, one of the really nice things that's going to happen, so like there are some bad turn cards, and I think this is the thing that really trips people up, is a lot of people just engage in worst-case scenario thinking. They're like, what if I check and the turn is an ace and someone bets? Then what do I do? Like, <laughs> right. Well, then you got unlucky. Like, I mean, <laughs> then you, you fold. The worst possible turn card and someone bet. Like, that happens. Yeah, this, this is a gambling game. Um, there are a lot more good turn cards for you than there are bad. And a good turn card is any turn card that is not an ace or a queen. Like, it doesn't need to improve our hand. Our hand improves the second we check. Our hand is stronger. Right? When we bet the flop, betting is also how you're going to play a lot of hands that are better than king-jack, right? You're often betting aces. You're often betting kings, queens, ace-jack, sets. Right? There, there's a lot of stronger, not a lot, but I mean, there are many stronger hands than king-jack that you're going to bet on this flop. When you check you are subtracting a lot of strong hands from your range. Your range gets weaker when you check. And what that means is that King Jack is promoted within your range, right? King Jack is much closer to the top of your range after you check than it is from the, at the second that you see the flop as an under-the-gun raiser. When you see the flop, King Jack is still like towards the top of your range, but it's maybe like top 30%, top 25% of your, of your range on this flop. Once you check, King Jack gets skyrockets. You know, now it's like top five or ten percent of your range. So it's a much stronger hand, even though it hasn't improved in any way. It didn't become two pair, didn't become trips, but it's a much stronger hand because you've weakened your range. And your opponents have weakened their ranges when they check. So when the button checks behind, the likelihood of me having the best hand goes up. And the likelihood of me getting called by worse goes up because he's also weakened his range by checking. So he knows that he would have bet a lot of his better hands on the flop. And so once he checks the flop, he's going to be prepared to call with weaker hands on later streets. Both of my opponents are. Yeah, I love this concept of promoting King Jack 
to now talk I, I think of it a little like the you know in chess you get the pawn all the way to the other side and it, it promotes the same same sort of thing it, it's uh, stronger than it was earlier because you've uh, you've advanced it i'll be sure to tell jen shahadi <laughs> that we, we work chess into our discussion today she's going to be really happy so all right it checks around and uh now we don't have to worry about bluff catching three streets because the uh, cutoff chose not to bet as well all mm-hmm. right so the turn comes the nine of spades so now we're looking at jack of diamonds five of spades tray of diamonds and now nine of spades so the board is jack nine five three with two diamonds and two spades and there's still 2600 in the pot and now the and i have i have king of diamonds jack of spades so i have one of each suit on the board right okay right so now the the big blind leads uh for 11 23 into 25 95 so a little less than uh half the pot there Mm-hmm. And the action's on us. So first of all, what do we make of this lead? I feel so again. Like this, this ties into what I was just saying. Like I feel much better about my hand facing a bet now than I would have facing a bet on the flop. Right. I, so I mean, I, I don't think that he has really weakened his range. Like there's a good chance that he has the big blind is just checking his range 100% on the flop. So this is really his first opportunity to make a meaningful bet. So it's not that he's weakened his range, but because I've weakened my range now, you know, King Jack is just like slam dunk facing about like I have the very like tip top of my range here. Uh, and I feel great about putting money into the pot. Um, I feel so good about it. In fact, that I chose to raise. Oh, sexy. All right. So, this is the part that I think people really don't do. Like, I think it's rare that you see people check a hand like this on the flop, but I think you very, very, very rarely see people check flop and then raise turn with just top pair. Right? People are usually um, – usually people just have sets when they do this. Like, honestly, that's what I see. When people check the flop and then raise the turn, I see sets more than – there's something that people – and like, this is a slow play, but I don't think you need a set. Like, I think King Jack is close enough to the top of my range. I got a beautiful turn card. Um you know, this is a strong enough hand to raise, especially in a multi-way pot where this comes back to that idea of I am raising for value. Like, I do think I have the best hand. I do think hands that are worse than mine will call. There's also a lot of value in getting that guy behind me out of there. Like, I don't want the cutoff over calling in this spot. Nothing good comes from that. I was going to say, I always hate having another player yet to act in position behind me. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess yeah, pushing I mean, my, him out my is hand is fun. not getting better on the river. Like right. even a king river is completing a straight. Like I, that's almost a bad river card for me. Like I, I would rather have a deuce river than a king river. Sure, yeah, agreed. Okay, so we make it thirty three thirty three. So he had bet eleven twenty three, and now you basically three x that. It's significant. This is a small raise relative to the pot because his bet was small relative to the pot. So he's getting like, and that's part of why I can do this a little more thinly. Like that's why I can do this with top pair mediocre kicker is I'm not charging him very much. So his range for calling this bet should still be like he should call pretty often. Like he's getting great odds to call this raise. He should call with a lot of hands. He should call with a wide range. And King Jack is going to be in better shape against a wide range than a narrow range. That's why your raise size doesn't have to be that big. His bet was small. 
you don't really want to go too big here because then you can really only get called by worse, correct? Well, yeah, I'm I'm strengthening his get called by better, but yeah, I'm, I'm I would be strengthening his range in a way that I think is undesirable. You know, I I want him calling with hands that are worse than King Jack, and the bigger I raise, the stronger his calling range will be to the point where my equity will not be as good against a strengthened calling range. Right, and then you can only be called by better, right? Okay, and so then. The uh, in-position player does fold, which is always good to see. And the uh, big blind calls you. And so at that point, I think that we should feel pretty good about our hand. Now, what is the uh, plan if we get three bet? Uh, It's a fine question to ask. I think it almost never happens. Right. (laughs) I guess you're right. So, I mean, I, I, this is part of the like worst case scenario. I think not, not that this is what you're doing, but just, I think that's like part of a lot of people's concern is like, what if I get three bet? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It sucks. Like, yeah, you have, I mean, your hand has become a king in the ace king queen game. Like, and zero your hand, like your, your value has gone pretty much to zero. Even if you don't fold, like the value of calling is probably pretty close to zero. Uh, so yeah, it's a bad, it sucks. It's a bad situation. It's not what we want to happen. Um, but I don't think it's very likely. Like, I think there's a lot of value in, so our hand does value fold equity to some degree, especially in a multi-way pot. Fold equity is a bigger deal because even if we don't get folds from the better, getting folds from that guy behind us, like maybe he's folding king queen, right? we're getting him off of a few outs. Um, so like we, we we definitely get valuable fold equity and we do pretty well when called. The only thing we don't want is to get three bet. But you know you can't have it all. It doesn't have to be that all three parts of the game three, all, all three parts of the game tree are profitable for you. That's rare. That's a lot to ask for. If two of three, especially the two most likely ones, are good for you, that that's good enough for me. Right, because in practice, a three bet here is usually not going to be with. I mean, it's it's going to be a set or something, right? It's he's representing a better hand than King Jack. Like either he's bluffing or he has King Jack beat, which means he's playing a polarized range. We're playing a condensed range, and that's just a bad spot to be in. Right, and also that would be a fairly sophisticated bluff for a <laughs> for an ACR hundred dollar tournament. Right. I mean, <laughs> realistically, I, I would likely fold. Um, it would depend. I mean, sometimes people do things where you convince yourself that they just like have to have a big draw. You know, maybe if he just like shoves all in, I might convince myself I had a big draw or something. But yeah, I mean, I, mostly I just, I'm not expecting it. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm, I honestly, I probably didn't even have a plan for it. Cause I was like, it's probably not going to happen and I'll cross that bridge if I come to it. Right. And, and you probably won't come to it. Okay. So right. yeah, he, he doesn't three bet. He just calls. And now we, I think we're still feeling pretty good about our King Jack here. I mean, this, this is this is exactly what I wanted. I got the guy behind me out. I made the pot a little bit larger against the player in front of me. Who it's important to note that guy's betting a lot of draws. The value of playing my hand against a draw on the river is pretty low. Again, if he if he if we just call and then he bombs the river. I, again, I'm going to mostly feel like I have a, a bluff catcher. I mean, I think it's going to be a plus EV bluff catcher because the Jack is going to be an important blocker. But especially on rivers that complete draws, if I just call the turn and, and then he bets the river, my hand does not have a lot of value. Right. Um, that's It's not a spot that I'm excited about. And that's generally true. When you have a made hand and you're playing against a draw, which we don't know for sure he has a draw, but playing a made hand against a draw, generally the made hand does better on the early streets. But on the river, no matter how good your made hand is, if the river is, and this is going all the way back to like David Sklansky theory of poker, um, on the river the draw is in better, you know, it has better EV than you do because the draw either gets there or it doesn't. And it's playing up. So it's a polarized range and your made hand, if he's drawing to a hand better than yours, then your made hand is a king in the ace, king, queen game. 
So, you know, if he has a draw, I'd benefit a lot from making the action happen on the turn. One of the things I'm giving myself the option to do is to check behind the river here or to force him to have to develop a donking range on the river, which is a much harder thing for him to do than to just bomb it on the river if I call a half-pot turn bet. Makes sense. Okay, so he calls, and now the river comes the deuce of spades for a final board of jack, five, three, nine, deuce, with three spades. So the backdoor spades did get there. Again, we have the king of diamonds and jack of spades. And I think it's important, you know, even though this is technically a backdoor draw, because there was no action on the flop, um, spades are 100% in his range, right? I mean, a lot of times people say backdoor draw, like that's a significant distinction if there was action on the flop where like he might have folded two spades on the flop. He didn't have an option to fold two spades on the flop because there was no betting on the flop. So, and especially, especially as a big blind caller, like he has a lot of spade spade combinations. So he can have like eight, four of spades, you know, like that's, that's perfectly well in his, in his range. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I mean, you're not wrong, but I, I just, from a strategic point of view, I don't think it matters that this is a backdoor draw. Makes sense. Especially because, most players never donk lead uh, into two opponents. He right. essentially He's checking 100 percent, right? Makes sense. Okay, so he checks one more time, and now we have the option to bet our hand. There is 92.61 in the pot. I never get used to this online poker. These crazy numbers. <laughs> 92.61. I, I I suppose we want to bet here. We got what we wanted here on the on the turn. We're not particularly worried about spades he could have spades just as likely as he could have uh, the other flush the one that didn't get there the diamonds but it's not particularly likely that he has either right i I think there's a number of other hands he can have besides spades it's important to point out that if he does have missed diamonds and i i I know this isn't what you were saying but um the fact that we're ahead of missed diamonds is of no relevance to the value bet on the river he's not calling a bet with missed diamonds so we need to think about not do we believe we have the best hand, but rather will I still have the best hand if he calls a bet, right? Because betting strengthens his range. Betting makes his range stronger. Betting causes him, you know, presumably to fold most of his missed draws. Occasionally, maybe he, you know, bluff check raises something, which is also bad. But uh, assuming he, he checks and calls, are we still going to believe, you know, that, that we have the best hand? And so the spades get in there on the river, you know, that's a big deal. That's a, a huge set of hands that we were ahead of on the turn that we're no longer ahead of on the river. Um, you know, this is not like I would have much preferred the deuce of hearts on the river to the deuce of spades. Uh, people tend to think about blockers when they're bluffing, maybe when they're bluff catching. Blockers are relevant for value betting, right? If, if the single biggest thing I'm worried about is running into two spades, then having the king of spades in my hand, it's going to be more profitable to bet with king of spades jack than to bet with king of hearts jack, right? You know, of course. He, he can't have king four of spades can't have king queen of spades um so i mean i would this is probably still a value bet if you have king of hearts jack but it's a more profitable value bet when you have king of spades jack um and yeah i mean it definitely makes me feel better about betting here it would also make me feel i mean i'm i'm (laughs) so i'm pretty sure if we got check raised on the river a solver would say to call because the king of spades is such an important blocker 
The problem is, um, I think, exploitatively, like <laughs> a lot of random players in a $100 Sunday tournament on ACR are just like so weighted towards value when they check raise the river that like even accounting for the fact that this would be a pure call at equilibrium, it might still be a pure fault against like a random ACR player. Yeah, sometimes even, you just have to, sometimes you just have to tell Pio to just to screw off. But that's why understanding game theory is so important. Is like it's not that you have to do uh, you know, to, to come way back to your early point about you know what relevance does game theory have for small stakes games. You don't have to do what a solver said. Game theory doesn't tell you to do anything. Game theory tells you what an equilibrium strategy would look like. That's just information for you to use to derive your own strategy to say okay knowing that this would be a mix at equilibrium tells me that i have great flexibility in terms of what i choose to do i can raise or fold pre-flop depending on you know my, my decision is very sensitive to table conditions if you have pocket aces under the gun or even pocket queens, right, that's not a mix at equilibrium. That is a 100% raise. And so for you to, uh, I mean, I guess we shouldn't be that extreme. Let's call it like pocket tens. Okay, we have pocket tens under the gun. It's a pure raise at equilibrium. For you to fold pocket tens under the gun, you would need some kind of, um, well, there's really nothing that could justify right, yeah. <laughs> um, But so yeah, I mean this is a good example. Like when you're facing a check raise on the river, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure this would be a pure call at equilibrium with the king of spades blocker. But you can, you can, it's perfectly legitimate for you to say, I understand why the equilibrium looks the way that it does, right? For me to have a preference for calling, I have to believe that my opponent is going to bluff this card at a certain frequency. Like he has to do things in order to make it profitable for me to call here. And I understand what those things are. I know where the equilibrium comes from. I know what he has to do in order to cause my equilibrium strategy to make sense for me. And so that means I can recognize when I think he's not doing those things. And I know, because I understand game theory, I know how should I deviate from the equilibrium strategy in order to exploit this player. Sometimes those are obvious, right? I mean, it doesn't take a genius to know if your opponent is uh, very loose, then you do more value betting and less bluffing on the river. It's not always as clear, you know, how should you play differently before the flop? How should you play differently on the flop if you have an opponent who's very loose? That's not always so obvious. A lot of people you know, wouldn't even know how to recognize an opponent who doesn't check raise the turn as much as they're supposed to. Certainly, you know, what are the exploitative adjustments you should make against an opponent who doesn't check raise the turn as much as they're supposed to? Um, a lot of people, that, that those kinds of things are like background built into their assumptions about how to play, but there's no theoretical grounding for it, which means they're not prepared for playing against people that they've never played against, or in particular, playing against very good players you know people who usually play small stakes and then suddenly they find themselves in a somewhat bigger game and people aren't making mistakes that they're used to people making and they're lost they just have no idea what to do because they're like oh they're not doing the stuff that i usually profit <laughs> from and so now i have no idea what i'm supposed to do right and i'm just lost because this is uncharted territory right mm -hmm. all right well with all that said as as much as it's a spade and not a heart that we would much rather see uh, I think we should bet here. But he did tell us he had something because now he could be bluffing when he leads the turn, but when he calls the raise there, there's mm -hmm. a reason why. So I guess the question becomes, and you know, this is what your book is all about, range construction. Just because he called your raise on the turn, do we still have the better hand often enough to get value from a river bet? And I feel like we do. Yeah, I agree. 
And I think it has a lot to do with the flop check. You know, because we subtracted so many strong hands from our range, King Jack, I mean, we could have some spades. It's not impossible for us to have two spades. So King Jack has, you know, it's gotten demoted on the river. <laughs> we have, we now have some stronger hands in our range. Like even like ace four, maybe could occasionally be in my range here where to, to river is straight. So King Jack has gotten a little bit demoted in the same way that it got promoted on the flop. Uh, but when I checked the flop, it got promoted on the river. Now it got demoted because I'm rivering some stronger hands than King Jack. But still, I think King Jack is close enough to the top of my range. And I think the fact that my opponent just called the turn makes it uh, less likely that he had a set on the turn. So I'm still worried about the possibility of him rivering a flush, but I'm not worried about him having very many hands better than King Jack on the turn. I think those are often raising. Right, and particularly with two flush draws available on the turn, most players would continue putting more chips in with a set on 4th Street. Not everybody and not always, well, of course. The river or something. Just, I think not a lot of people are just calling the turn and then checking the river with checking a set. With a set, yeah. So we can discount that possibility pretty significantly, I think. Agreed. Yeah, so I think we should bet. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think this is definitely a bet. Like I said, I think it's it's probably a pure bet even without the king of spades. With the king of spades, it's a slam dunk bet. Again, it sucks to get check raised. No, I didn't really have a plan. I was gonna be mad if I got check raised. <laughs> the plan was <laughs> to get mad. <laughs> that's not enough to make it unprofitable. Like even you know, check raising, I mean, we just treated it as zero. Like just like pretend you folded the check raise, right? And then you have so the value of betting now has to be not just greater than zero it has to be greater than the what you're going to lose to a check raise right assuming that he does occasionally check raise bluff but you're going to fold you're going to lose something to that check raise call it you know eight uh, percent of the pot is like the frequency with which he check raises as a bluff is eight percent of the time so you're losing eight percent of the pot to river check raise bluffs that means you have to be winning more than eight percent of the pot from the times that he checks and calls to make up for that loss and i think that i am And, you know, this really gets to the crux of a conversation that you and I have had several times over the years. So many players approach the game with the idea of trying to avoid difficult decisions and just to make their own lives easier as they play. Now, I don't know if that's because they don't want to make mistakes, and so they play with the intention of avoiding mistakes, so they try not to put themselves in position where they might make mistakes, or if it's just because they like to play 20 tables at a time and it's easier to do that if you are avoiding any really hard decisions on any given table. Uh, But yeah, I definitely think it's more profitable. It's obviously more profitable to have hard decisions sometimes. That's part of the cost of doing business, correct? Yeah, I I think you have to if you want. If, if If your primary goal is to make money at poker, then I think you have to lean into some situations that are going to result in you making tough decisions. Um, I know that's not everyone's goal, right? I mean, some people play for fun and, you know, having like stress. I mean, all right, if stress isn't fun for you, you probably just shouldn't be playing poker, period. <laughs> but I understand that like facing tough decisions is particularly stressful. Like regret is stressful. Feeling like you made mistakes is, is stressful. So I do understand why for people for whom profit is not goal number one, I understand why it's like appealing to avoid those things. Um, but if you want to make money at poker, you can't come into that with that mindset of I'm just going to make things nice and easy for myself. I mean, m- you can probably be like very small stakes games that way. But even there, like the goal, you know, poker is not just a, a like black and white win or lose 
thing. I mean, you can win more or less. Like you could be a small winner at small stakes if you just play like super straightforwardly. You always bet when you top pair unless the draw's there and then you never bet because what if you get check raised? Like you are leaving money on the table. I mean, if, if this is a profitable bet and you don't take it, you are losing money. Just as clearly as if you, you know, call Riverbed and lose and you lose money. Again, it's the the I guess it's the opposite. Right? A, a dollar earned is a dollar saved. <laughs> to, right. to come back to Benjamin's, <laughs> Benjamin's wisdom. Uh, I mean, you are you are losing money when you choose not to do something for fear of, of anything, you know, for, for fear of getting raised, for fear of getting drawn out on. Anytime that you make a choice to do something in a poker game for any reason other than EV, EV maximization, you are costing yourself money. And that's, you know, it's it's your personal decision whether or not you care about that money more than you care about what other, whatever other goal you want to optimize for. But I guess I'm kind of assuming people buying the book or people watching videos on TPE, these are people who are pretty serious about wanting to get better at poker. And that means you learn to make the tough decisions. You don't run away from them. Because usually the situations that require you to make tough decisions also require your opponents to make tough decisions. Right? The only reason getting check raised on the river would be a tough decision is if my opponent is also putting in the work of really developing like a, a good well-constructed, well-balanced river check-raising range. Otherwise, I'm mostly going to feel like I can just fold the check-raises because schmucks don't check-raise bluff the river often enough. So if unless I have reason to believe my opponent is not a schmuck, um, then you know I'm just going to fold. And the only way that he exploits that is by putting in the work and doing the difficult thing of check-raising the river, and I'm kind of counting on not a lot of players actually doing that. So what you're really doing is you're saying, who's going to be better at making the difficult decisions, me or my opponent? And if you just study how to make difficult decisions, for instance, uh, reading a certain book that's uh, coming out <laughs> on Monday, the 25th, um, then you know, you're going to be better equipped to do those things than your opponents. Right? I mean, it's, it's about who does things better. That's what that's what poker really is about. Uh, dude, this is, I guess, the Tommy Angelism of, of reciprocity. Right? The, um, anything that happens in a poker game is an opportunity for you to do it better than your opponent. So the goal is not don't make mistakes. The goal is make fewer mistakes than your opponents do. And there's two ways of doing that. One is to make fewer mistakes yourself. Two is to cause your opponents to make more mistakes. And there can be a trade-off between those things. So if you start going down the road of let's get into some weird spots, let's check the flop and then raise the turn. I mean, yeah, you haven't done that. I haven't done that a lot of times either. Like, this was a little bit of unexplored territory for me, but it was probably even more unexplored territory for my opponent, and he was probably a lot less equipped to explore it than I was, and that's why I thought it was uh, a plus EB thing for me to do. Yeah, you certainly took an unusual line, like you said, before we even heard how the hand went down. So here we go on the river. We bet half the pot, and our opponent shoves right back into our face. No, I'm just kidding. He calls. <laughs> so, uh, results of this hand, we won. Uh, we won a, a very nice pot here, and probably a bigger pot than we would have had, than we would have won had we played our hand in the, uh, I guess, a more traditional way. Our opponent called this river bet with pocket Two tens, tens. Because it's so hard to put you on a jack when you check the flop with two opponents that's really what made you all this extra money i think so you know and I, this this is why i say like checking the flop is not about protecting some future check it's about increasing the likelihood that i get called by pocket tens and that's exactly what ended up happening 
So let me ask you another question about promotion. Uh, in the big blind shoes, holding these pocket tens, when the flop jack uh, checks through, am I correct, generally speaking, in promoting my hand? Yes. Right? Tens feel a lot better about where they are, especially with all these possible flush draws around. Well, if he would have had a jack, he he probably would have betted on the flop, so that means my tens are probably good. And now mm-hmm. he's bluffing me with this rate. Like, trying to think about this hand from the big blinds standpoint, you know, I almost... I don't want to even say almost. I don't blame him for calling you on the turn and river because nobody plays a jack this way. Yeah, and it's not just... Um... Not just that they don't, but they don't have a lot of incentive to. Right. Like, there's a lot of good reasons to bet a jack on the flop. Um, and I would, if I had a different kicker, if I had jack 10, I would have bet the flop. Because then there's three over cards I want to protect against. Even if I had king jack without the king of diamonds, I might have been more inclined to bet the flop. Because then I'm a little bit more worried about a diamond coming. Or, you know, the jack of spades, again, like, I'm on this run out, I'm less worried about, yeah, I, I kept saying I had the king of spades. I had the jack of spades. But regardless, I had a spade, which is the important part. So, like, knowing that spade rivers are not going to be so bad for me because i have the jack of spades in my hand knowing diamond rivers aren't going to be so bad because the king of diamonds is in my hand diamond or king turns aren't going to be so bad knowing all those things increases the value for me of checking the flop but legitimately like there are a lot of good reasons to bet good hands on the flop if i had a hand that i was a little more excited about playing for stacks i'd have more of a reason to bet the flop if i had a hand that valued fold equity a little bit more i'd have more of a reason to bet the flop this just happened to be like a real sweet spot of a hand where i just didn't i felt like it was okay to check the flop here and my opponent is not wrong to think tens is a pretty good hand. He also probably wouldn't even be wrong to throw any idea of balance to the wind and just say, like, most people never check a flop here, uh, never check a jack here on the flop, so I'm going to close my eyes and call down. The the one problem with that, I guess, is I call it, like, uh, half-assed hand rating, where he's saying what he doesn't think I have. You know, he's like, oh, he probably doesn't have a jack, but he's not really saying what he does think I have because, like, most people don't do this as a bluff either. So it's really just a weird thing, period, like, to check the flop and then raise the turn like this. It's just a weird line in general, and it doesn't necessarily make it more or less likely that I have a strong hand or a bluff. So to just say, well, you know, I don't think we'd play a jack that way, so I call with tens, that's really only doing half the work. I mean, you... If you can say he wouldn't play a jack, but he would play a bluff that way, then it makes sense to call down with tens. Uh, otherwise, I mean, it's it's a zero EV bluff catcher at every single point. Like he should definitely bet the turn. That that part I think is not close. Once he gets raised, like whether to call the raise, whether to call the river, those are both things that you know in theory he should be more or less indifferent. Wow, Andrew. As usual, I feel like I say this every time we talk on the podcast or ever. You have blown my mind, as you always do. You have 100% delivered, as you always do. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, hanging out with me tonight. I know it's getting close to your bedtime. So (laughs) (laughs) why don't you uh, tell us uh, about your book, how we can get it. I'm sure everyone's going to be very eager to get their hands on a copy. Well, first off, you bring out the best in me. (laughs) Oh, thank you. you. Thanks. yeah, so the book is Play Optimal Poker 2, Range Construction. Um, it is going to be available on Monday, May 25th. The paper, uh, if you want a paper book, it'll be available in large print or uh 
you know, normal, normal book, but I know there are some folks out there who don't have the greatest eyesight. So uh, you can get a large print edition as well. Those are going to be available on Amazon. That would be the only place to get a paper book. Uh, for an ebook, you have two options. You can get uh, from Amazon, which would just be the Kindle version, and that'll get like automatically delivered to your Kindle the way any kind of Kindle book that you buy would be. You can also buy ebooks directly from me at nitcast.com, <laughs> N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. The uh, upside of doing that, the main reason to do that would be if you have an e-reader other than a Kindle. So if you want a PDF version of the book or you want an EPUB that you could read on your Nook or whatever other uh, e-reader you might have, you'll get all three. You'll, you'll still get a version that you can read on a Kindle. You'll also get a PDF and an EPUB if you buy it from uh, Nickest. So those are your options there. Um, for people who have not read Play Optimal Poker yet, I do think you should read a, the original book before you read this one. Um, the very good news on that is just today I lowered the price on the ebook version of Play Optimal Poker. So that is now available for $10 from uh, the same places, Amazon or Nickcast, if you want an ebook. If you want paper, Amazon is still the only place to get that. The paper price has not been reduced, but the ebook price is uh, now down from $30 to $10 if you want the original Play Optimal Poker. So if you've been dragging your feet on that, this is the time to get it. Well, there's no reason not to buy that masterpiece for ten dollars just like there was no reason not to buy it for 30 so yeah that's a bargain believe me folks that that book play optimal poker the original really did change my approach to the game and i really think it made me a much better player uh i'm about a quarter of the way through andrew's new book play optimal poker 2 and it is absolutely blowing my mind uh just like everything andrew puts out so uh speaking of bargains we have tournament poker edge which is an unbelievable training site where you can get more andrew than anybody wants really i mean there's so much andrew <laughs> we've got andrew's videos we've got andrew uh discussing hands in the forums and you know andrew is a very big part of why tpe is such a highly regarded training site so uh, andrew do you have anything else coming out for tpe in the near future the number one thing which i guess i, I hinted at already is you're going to see a hand for hand replay of the um that 50 dollar tournament where i made the final table so that'll be every single hand that i played i did late register because it's an acr tournament like you have to late register this <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah so you'll uh, that that should be coming out i guess it'll be sometime in uh in june my may video series is a member hand history review so if you want to see me um talking about play at even smaller stakes than a 50 dollar tournament right one of the things that you know a lot of people will say when they hear me talk about game theory or talk about certain things is like oh you know maybe you need that when you're playing in the wsop main event but in my game that kind of stuff doesn't fly so you know this is me playing your game right that you can see me in a 50 dollar tournament you can see me commenting on i think it was an 11 dollar it might have been a $50 turn. I forget the exact stakes, but like this is you know much smaller stakes and you'll see what I am and I'm not doing at those stakes and how I am thinking about things. And uh, it's not so different, honestly. Like, though, I mean, some of the decisions that I end up making are different, but the way that I'm thinking is not wildly different when I'm in a $50 tournament versus when I'm in a $10,000 tournament. Well, it's still no living hold'em, so... Well, Andrew, I, I'm sorry I kept you so long. I know we had planned to do an hour. We've done uh, a lot no, it's more. A, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Well, of course, uh, on behalf of all of our listeners, 
uh, really appreciate you coming on and uh, best of luck with the new book and uh, thank you for uh, being here so for Andrew Brokus and for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge I'm Clayton Fletcher thank you so much for listening Everybody, everybody, no, she can't read a mouth. Oh,